this is B2B is not set it and forget it. In so many ways, that's how companies think about B2B commerce. It's just like, oh, I implement it and you're done. I'm like, no, that's just the start. Hello and welcome to a new episode of B2B E-Commerce Accelerator. We're going to interview a B2B e-commerce guru, I can say. Awesome. Before we jump into the interview, if you enjoyed listening in, please leave a review and rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so you can help your peers find the content easier and better. So this brings us really to our guest of today. We have with us Paul Duforno. Well, big welcome to you, Paul. Managing Director Commerce at Deloitte. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks, excited to be here. Good, that's great to hear, Paul. So the first question we always ask to people, and maybe you know if you've seen the previous episodes, is basically how people ended up in sales, right? Because a lot of people and the target audience of our podcast is sales leaders. Uh, many people don't choose for a sales career when they are younger. However, with you, we want to change the question a little bit because as we already said in the introduction, you're a guru in e-commerce. So basically our question to you to kick off this episode today is how did you end up in B2B e-commerce? Yeah, sure. So like many, I actually started, I'm originally from Canada. I have a computer science degree from University of Waterloo and I started as a tech guy and nice. I graduated almost exactly when the web was just starting in the late mid to late 90s, I had the great opportunity to learn from the beginning and be part of some of the first web, building the first websites and learning a lot of that technology. And so I had this great experience of continuing to being on some of those first big brands like BMW and lots of big brands of really understanding how to build these first tools on the web. And I went to the dot-com boost and bond. Yeah. <laughs> and I really got into, as I got into more leadership roles from a technical architecture, that it started to pivot into more of a sales because I could authentically talk about the solution and be mm -hmm. able to communicate it, right? And so that's when I kind of 15, 20-ish years ago kind of pivoted more into because I understood what it took to build. I could speak about it more and then it kind of just naturally progressed into more of a, a sales role. And specifically, 20 years ago, I got into some of the first websites building. And, you know, over the last 20 years, I've actually been part of the advisory board of almost every enterprise commerce platform from IBM, Oracle, SAP, Salesforce, Adobe, and a bunch of ecosystem players. I started the early days of helping B2C get on into you know understanding commerce and transforming into helped one of the largest retailers get off of Amazon, Target, here in the US 14 years ago. And so much of what we learned around bringing these B2C and B2C commerce in the last seven years where I focus more on B2B, they're kind of going through a similar trail that now we're helping get over what it's not an only silo and really changing how people are thinking about it as an opportunity to grow and really drive the future of many of these companies. Yeah, that's really cool, Paul. So thanks for that. And as you know, we focus completely on B2B. 
and B2B e-commerce. So it's really cool that you have so much experience, both on the B2C side, but also the B2B uh, side and 15 to 20 years of experience in commerce. So, well, we will talk about many of those things, I'm sure. Maybe on the introduction side as well, you're currently managing director commerce. So can you tell a little bit what you currently do in your current role? Sure. I'm part of the leadership of the commerce practice here in the U.S. Deloitte Digital is one of the largest commerce digital agencies in the world. You know, we're partners with many of the largest platforms and we do everything. We have studios around the world. We do everything from strategy, design to build and then operate commerce, both B2B and B2C and everything kind of around it. My specific role, I have a couple of hats that I run. First of all, I run our marketing eminence. And so I'm out here talking on podcasts and presenting at a lot of conferences. But specifically, my passion, especially over the last six to seven years, I've been about driving B2B commerce. We really see that as the largest growth engine for the foreseeable future, because what we've seen is a lot of B2B commerce, a lot of these B2B companies are been late to the digital and investing there and then been industrial companies that have waited. And so really, this is our biggest growth area. And we're really excited to continue to help get the word out there of there's so many opportunities, you got to get out there and do it. Speaking of search, Paul, I think we, we recognize this a lot. I think you reposted an article headlining, it's still a paper world for many digitally minded manufacturers, which kind of hits the nail on the head and aligns perfectly with what you're saying. Now, what is your perspective on what is causing this kind of delay, if you like? What is causing those companies to be, is it hesitance? Is it, what, what is it? Yeah, I think what you have, and I think there is a continuum, right? I think from highly technical media, digital B2B companies are further ahead, whereas there's a massive growth and a massive behind in industrial and chemicals and oil and gas. Those are the ones that are further behind. And what we see in a lot of these companies is that they've had people that have worked there for 20, 30 years and have done it the same way. All of these deals have been handshakes and you have a lot of like, well, you'll never be able to do the same deals, right? Like, so there's a lot of just getting over the change management. So the hardest Mm. part is really getting people to change the way they think about sales and how digital and B2B commerce can actually help them, right? And so we spend a lot of time, not exactly about the technical, but like from the business value that can transform where they're at today. Do you see that hesitance mainly? You mentioned salespeople. I think that's mm-hmm. something that we recognize as well. I think a large part of our audience, the audience of this podcast, is also are also salespeople, so they may recognize that too. Is it also the leadership of those companies? Is it also embedded in the strategy to focus on those handshake deals? Yeah, sometimes also it's a. There's also semantic challenges. Like people say, one of the things that I, I hear a lot of people talk about B2B commerce, they'll think. Okay, commerce, they think of it just in one way. Well, nobody's just going to order from the website, right? Well, and I step back and I said, well, wait a minute. A lot of what I'm talking about now, when I talk about B2B commerce, I inject a term that we did when we started 20 years ago with B2C to help think of it. I now always say, actually, you should talk about it as omnichannel B2B commerce, because right away it forces people to think about all the different things. So not only think about the direct commerce, but What about marketplaces, third-party marketplaces, your own marketplaces, sales-assisted, punch-out procurements and how they fit in. And so once you start to break out all of those things, then think people are like, oh, well, 
maybe we kind of have that, but we've not connected at all. And so there's a lot of education to one, break away the idea of just, oh, it's off in one channel and that's all it does. No, B2B commerce should be omni-channel and you should think about how that all fits together and drives that change. And so some of that helping to educate and honestly, our biggest thing when we've seen some of the results, people also focus on just the orders, but like some of the voice of the customer research that our company has done is we've heard it's about making it easier to do business with. And that's the real value overall. Thank you. Yes. I recognize a lot of what you say. Thanks. Going a little bit more into the differences because you talked about B2C and B2B and B2B, let's say the environment in B2B. So what are maybe more differences that you see based on your experience between B2C and B2B commerce? Yeah, the thing you can tell right away if you're if somebody tells you like, hey, I do B2C and doing B2B is just giving a B2C experience. Like right away, I know you don't really know B2B, right? (laughs) And it's my pet peeve, right? B2B is different, full stop. And it's different in so many ways. And we like to show a picture of all the different personas. When you're buying B2C, it's you personally. If I get engaged and I buy it, boom, you're done, right? Yeah. If you're selling to companies, there may be 12 different types of people you're dealing with. Procurement, field sales staff, sales leadership, right? All these different types of roles, people to get aligned to buy is super complicated. And so you have to think about how do you make it easier at all the different points that and make it you're solving different problems. So all the more complicated, not just the one person that I'm trying to convert to buy if I was in B2C. And so there's so many more different things. And so that that's a good test. If somebody tells you all you need is a B2C experience, they yeah. haven't done it before. <laughs> no, we couldn't agree more, Paul. And as you know, we come across this a lot and we hear this also a lot. So it's very, yeah, we can very much relate to it. And it's very funny that you put that out. And so going back, because you mentioned you also help from a Deloitte point of view and change management, right? And that's, uh, according to you, a big factor at B2B companies. So it's not only about the technology, but also about the change that companies need to make. So is this also one of the components in this change management, describing the personas maybe, or looking at the different personas and then looking at what their role is potentially in the e-commerce journey? Yeah, so thinking about change management, you need to think about all these different personas that are involved as part of the process. And so we haven't talked about the salespeople. Salespeople are key, right? Mm. So the first rule, and I actually had this happen once, I came in, a client, they said, we had this great website. The user experience is awesome, but we haven't got adoption. Can you help us? Okay. So we went in and we went and talked to a few of the customers. And then one of the customers gave us, was a little more open and said, well, you know, the website is awesome. We like it, but Joe's our sales guy. And he told us I'm, he wasn't going to get a, his bonus if I ordered this way. So I didn't order that way. Well, of course, you don't want that, right? And right away, the salespeople weren't included. And so one of the things we always do is early on, we have somebody or a group of people that are part of the input mm. to the experience, especially the salespeople. And so when we also look at when we roll it out, 
not only do we suggest that people should get credit for the commerce, you should have incentives. If you're a salesperson and you tell your people to get using the tool and they'll get extra incentives, they'll actually help you drive adoption. And so that's just one example in one type of role, right? That is so critical to the success. Of course, we start to look at all the different roles, like the call center might have a sales assist and they're co-going on the website and ordering for the customer and we go through the training of them. So there's a lot Mm -hmm. of different ways. and, And honestly, that's almost as important as the technology is like, how to really change their commercialization strategy and bring it and making everybody understand how that fits all throughout the process. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for bringing that up, actually, the point of adoption, right? Because we see this also so many times that investments are being made, right? They already run an e-commerce platform, or if they don't, they are about to make a considerable investment. And then when you look at the adoption of the e-commerce platform, it's in many cases in B2B still so low. It was actually one of the reasons for us to start this podcast series, right? Because when you look at it, there are so much potential, if you positively say it, when it comes to more adoption in B2B e-commerce. So it's great that you bring up adoption. Can you tell a little bit more, Paul, around your experience with adoption? Like you've helped many customers and you have many customers currently in B2B. So what's your take on the current state of adoption when it comes to B2B e-commerce? Can you say something about that? Yes. So right away, that's again, after you install, I like to say in this, again, this might be a more North American thing. There used to be this commercial at late night TV for you're buying these, a roaster. And they used to be, he used to say, You just put it in and you set it and forget it and it'll roast, right? (laughs) And this is B2B is not set it and forget it, right? Or any system. In so many ways, that's how companies think about B2B commerce. It's just like, oh, I implement it and you're done. I'm like, no, that's just the start. And so a bunch of different topics and I'll just kind of hit some important things. First of all, as part of the org change management is changing the roles of your sales leadership to have the responsibility that drives that adoption, right? So it has to be formally. If people aren't incented, they won't do it. Especially sales guys, what do you think? (laughs) There are sales guys in their name, training them, putting it in their incentives, and then checking in, right? That's one. From a dollar perspective, in fact, what's fascinating now is I'm starting to hear more calls quarterly calls from larger companies that they're starting to report out what is their digital penetration as a way to show, hey, this is how advanced they are. Not only is this internally kind of best practices, the market and the investor relations are starting to see that. So if they see a company, hey, their penetration is way lower, what are they doing? And so, because, and, and I'll give you a specific example, again, to the bottom line, We did a work recently for a chemical company and we were doing work as part of their distribution arm and we implemented B2B commerce for them. They were very happy. They rolled it out and they ended up getting carved out and sold. And we were told that the fact that they had e-commerce part of it increased their sale of the company by hundreds of millions of dollars. So their return was like, over 20 times the investment that they did. 
And this was PE firms that paid wow. that extra multiple. And so I think that's going to start to be the aha moment, right? Because PE firms are paying more. The street is saying this is valuable more, right? These are all going to be noticeable. If you're not following up, the valuation of your companies are going to be affected. You know, other things that is part of adoption, obviously from the sales perspective, I think also we end up doing a lot around marketing campaigns, right? And more digitally marketing. And so you get a wealth of data that comes out. And this is of all the benefit of why you do B2B commerce is because you also get data. So for example, if all of a sudden some of your products are being hit and it's a certain customer and they never bought that product before, guess what? That's an insight. And it would be interesting if nobody's looking at the data or has dashboards or have triggers to let your regional salesperson that covers that client, you should. And those are, it's not just about, you know, the order. It's about all those other insights that you're getting that then can help drive that wheel of selling. So having all of those tools ongoing, like looking over the sales and those dashboards is is just as important as kind of rolling out. And again, as far as the sales leadership, they should have that then as just part of the normal course of business that their sales teams are are looking at this data and actioning it. You also mentioned one very important reason, particularly for larger companies and enterprises to do want to go and add that digital channel to the online channel experience they may or may already have. Right, the digital penetration you mentioned and the impact it has on valuation and, and how PE view view your organization. What other reasons for businesses do you typically come across for them to want to go more digital? Yeah, so it usually ends up being a couple of different buckets, right? One, new sales growth and cost savings. And so new sales growth. Many times, lots of companies might say, hey, I'm only going to target this market because that's the sales team that I can cover those areas. And so a lot of times now you see B2B commerce allow companies to serve areas that they couldn't before because they didn't have the sales team to cover it. And so the B2B can like get more of the long tail opportunity. So what people end up finding are, hey, they might have standard pricing, but they'll just throw it out there because in those segments, they're not as worried. It's And they find lots of new incremental dollars. And in fact, when they try that out, they end up learning some more. They invest, you know, a lot more. So there's a lot of incremental markets that people aren't aware of. And that's only, and again, going back to my point around omni-channel, and I like to, again, think about it as part of the strategy. It's not just your own. It's, hey, can you now connect up to a third-party marketplace and learn, right? And then if you go global, different areas might be more apt to leveraging marketplaces, right? So if you go to LATEM, there's certain marketplaces that are more important there that you should plug into, right? And in China, they have their own marketplaces that you have to plug it into. So all of these, depending on your strategy, going global and growth are tools to help you help you get there. And so growth, sales growth, without having to invest in the people. And then the other side of the ledger on cost savings, right? If you have a number of people are just, tell me if you heard this one before, because this is actually the number one thing that we hear from my voice to the customer is the biggest thing that they want to see is, where's my order, right? 
And if you have <laughs> people, people calling, right? And if you have that tool to help defer that, like go to the website, it's there, the mobile app, you can see the status of your order, when it's coming. And even some people have gotten really fancy of, they have trackers on the trucks because some industrial things, it makes a lot of difference, the exact timing into the building delivering, you know, cement or delivering products as part of the build, it, you need to coordinate. And so all of those things, putting them digitally takes away from somebody having to be on the call or waiting around. This is a point where people get a little sensitive about, are you going to be displacing jobs? It's like, no, for the most part, what those people do is focus on higher value added work deal with real problems than dealing with things that are simple that from your customers can quickly take a look at and understand. And I think the other big part of this is just the, and now we've been at this, the technology here has been available for so long. It's starting to be the people that you're serving are now primarily millennials or old, or even maybe even younger that Mm -hmm. they just expect these tools. (laughs) So if you don't have it, it's they're unbelievably frustrated and can't even understand. Literally, they cannot understand if you don't have <laughs> tools other than going to talk to somebody, let alone wait for a fax. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think all those factors that you mentioned are factors that we come across all the time when we speak to buyers and customers, whether it's new sales or expansion or cost savings or, well, the last part you, you, you touched on is is customer expectation or improving the customer journey. What we also see quite a bit of is that when buyers start speaking to a vendor such as us, they sometimes kind of skip the step to make those goals measurable and build a solid business case before they do speak to vendors and before they start to make an investment decision. I'm sure that's something that you and your team at Deloitte come across a little bit as well and and probably are also helping customers with. What's your perspective? And just to be clear, the perspective of the investment challenge or what? Do, do you-, you also see custom or buyers struggling with making that business case really, making those uh, those desired results tangible and, and, and building that case? Yeah, it's, it is. And one of the, the most interesting tip, and you guys can use this because this has just happened in the last year or so. It's come up quite a bit. So as you can imagine... Do building in a B2B commerce and some, especially industrial companies, they're used to running with their ERP, right? And ERPs, predominantly everything they really haven't thought about. And I like to talk about B2B commerce plus the front office, right? All things, the front office. And we do a lot of work with some of the largest ERP vendors. I think we're the largest implementer for SAP and Oracle in the world. And so if you think about it, we've now, in the last couple times of projects, We've been brought in to help the business case, not only to do B2B commerce, but to also help with the value case to do the upgrade to S4. Who would have thought that? Before, yeah. you know, a couple of years ago, you're like, you know, come back, we're doing the ERP upgrade. Well, actually, you can now say, hey, we can help you with your business case to help not only drive new business, but we'll help pay for your back office. That's a big insight that we've learned. And the specific areas that we've been able to determine are things around one, cost to serve reduction. While that's been, there's some opportunity there that's been relatively small comparatively, but the big opportunity is the incremental revenue that they leave on the table, right? Via enabling marketplaces, enabling being able to sell much easier into 
other segments that they weren't doing. And so that's helped drive the actual business case to pay for the back office. That's a cool- Love it. We hear that all the time. And, and the funny part is, and I'm sure you guys can appreciate, is how important the back end guys are and yes. SAP, right? And, Absolutely. But magically, I've become their best friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really interesting. Yeah, so just to summarize you, Paul, so we get it. So what you're saying is basically the investment in B2B e-commerce and what you call the front office and the returns coming out of it can basically help with making the business case on the back end as well. Companies that run older ERP legacy systems, like on the older versions of SAP and going into S4HANA, which is typically... Uh, a bigger project, but actually with B2B e-commerce, it becomes a really interesting business case. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, it's and it can increase the business case or really, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it brings, so, and, and yeah. I'll give you- Or specific, improve. I won't give you the actual dollars, but just kind of a case. So a couple things. So one, if you think about it, a lot of these companies, if they're going to do a digital transformation, it's a huge investment and they have to go to the board. They just want to go once right? Let's ask for all the money. So let's do it then. Well, we ended up finding that the one case where out of the total investment, let's say 100%, the front office cost and investment was 20%, but we actually brought 55% of the value case between 55 and 60. And even though it was only the 20% of the investment, and that should be something that from the whole industry on the B2B commerce should be pounding the table on that, hey, we can help drive the value case for these transformations. Do you see any other trends currently in the market that you think are interesting to share with us? This is what I'm supposed to say, AI, chat, GPT. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yes. <laughs> Everyone is talking about it, right? Sure, but, everybody yeah. can talk about that yeah. and, and know a lot about that. But honestly, the, yeah. the B2B are so early in the process right? I'm spending most of my time talking about people in the first, they're starting and they're dipping their toe. So if you start yeah. talking about AI, chat GPT, they're like, whoa, they can't even. Let's start with the basics. <laughs> yeah. And so part of my reason of being on here is to help break the idea, like get in there. There is opportunity, learn, get in small. And so it's easy to be the flashy, but I've been doing a lot of this B2B commerce. And it's mm. like, get in there, start small. And so a lot of success that we've had with some of these companies is, you know what, all we're going to do is put up an order tracking, not even order. Step one, allow your customers to see their orders on a web and the status, and they can print their invoice. And so you get basic help with them. And then that then starts that like, oh, wow, they get great feedback. And that, that really drives a lot of adoption. And so there's so few companies that are further down you probably see more distributors that are further mm -hmm. down the pike because their role in selling like B2B commerce is very similar. So you see them being much more down the way. So most I see in that entry. So if I just step back and said some of our customers that are further down the place, what I'm seeing other things, again, that are super important that they didn't take as much, that they hadn't focused on as much, but like things such as PIM or product experience yeah. management, mm -hmm. the importance, because what happens is you might be a CPG brand and all of a sudden, not only do you have to give and send information to Amazon, but you got to send it to Walmart, you got to send it to Target. Before you know it, you have a hundred different 
websites of data that you need to send data, pictures, all of that, like people are forgetting. And so what we're seeing is how to best optimize everything to facilitate this omni-channel world, right? The tools, these, the product information, the search that enables it, right? The order management that ties all of this stuff together. And so what we're, this is becoming much more of a, as it grows up, this industry, it's how do you make the whole ecosystem improved along the way? And of course, I can talk about <laughs> ChatGPT and we're actually doing some stuff around AI, but things such as from being able to generate content information very quickly in lots of different forms, or even some of our partners that we've placed in 3D renderings that are local to where you're at and leveraging some of those tools. But really, that's kind of like way off to the side. Our business of B2B is really in the early days, and we have to continue to get people to adopt that first part. Absolutely, Paul. And uh, we can only echo this. So thanks for uh, extensively answering this. And we, we see this as well. So I'm not sure how we call it, the foundation in e-commerce maybe, or yeah. right? But the that's fundamental. really good. So the, fundamental. the fundamentals. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, really good. I'd be interested to understand, I predominantly have the visibility North America, be interesting to what you're seeing Europe-based. I know you're global, but primarily right now, Europe-based. How are you seeing the B2B market there and the adoption. I think Europe is slightly behind even further if you if you compare it to North America, particularly when it comes to marketplaces. So if you talk omnichannel, you mentioned marketplaces and EDI or punch out and commerce and traditional or offline. I think omnichannel in, in, in Europe is oftentimes not even marketplaces. So Amazon has entered the European market as well, of course, but not at the scale that has yeah. in North America, for instance. So there's that adds complexity too, right? Because there's there's a large, relatively large marketplace per country typically. But you have only seen, I think Amazon only entered, for instance, the German market, I think two or three years ago or so. Right. So that that adds additional complexity because also those local local marketplaces are still there. So from that perspective, particularly looking at marketplaces, I think I think North America's is ahead. Looking at other channels within the omnichannel experience, I think Europe is relatively at an equal level compared to, to North America. Again, meaning that, that B2B e-commerce is, is light years behind B2C e-commerce. And yeah. it's very much also around still laying the fund- foundations for us and for many of our customers and buyers. Ironically, almost because like if you look at, especially like England, their mm-hmm. penetration rate on B2C is ahead of many places in the world, right? And European is also, their their adoption yeah. and penetration on B2C is is further ahead than in North America. The yeah, B2B that's interesting. A little, yeah, it's a, B2B is a little bit more complicated. So, and when you, especially when you're dealing with large orders and multiple languages in different countries, it makes it a little bit more complex. Yeah, Definitely. different uh, different regulatory restrictions, right? If you are in pharma, yeah. for instance, right? Then that's, well, there's regulatory restrictions yeah. between states in the US as well, of course, but the differences between some European countries are massive. So, and, there, and again, indeed, there's different languages. So there's a little bit more complexity there. I think it's, it's pretty, pretty comparable. 
Other than that. Maybe one thing to add, Paul, from my side, but I fully agree with Tim in what we see in Europe compared to the States. But I think in the States, what is great is the adoption of the pay online payments, right? Mm, and I think also, you yeah. know that. But compared to Europe, that's very different. I think the Americans are much more used to using credit cards and online payments. So we see that. Yeah, quite a difference between our American customers and European customers. And the great thing with B2B commerce, as we see it, is that there are some really nice use cases when it comes to online payments in relation to B2B processes, right? So we work together with ADN. You know them probably, a global payment service provider. And for example, when you look at customers that typically pay on account, but they still have an outstanding amount which you call credit limit, right? For example. So once they have exceeded the credit limit and you have the option of online payments in your B2B commerce platform, then you can say, look, when my customer exceeded it, they can make use of an online payment and right away the order goes through. Whereas if you don't use online payments, right? Then first this needs to be sorted before the customer can continue in many cases. In that sense, you could say that America's is, is ahead. And I think that's a great thing. And we see now Europe more and more going in, into making use of online payments as well in B2B, which I think is exciting and has a lot of potential. Yeah, we're, we're seeing that probably in the, some of the customers that we're dealing with at the highest, the dollar amounts are so big that they're mm. paying on, it's hard, they're not paying on credit card. And some of the payments styles are... They have agreements and very complex agreements that it's yeah. less so. I think in our in a couple of our customers that, in fact, they I do have a couple of customers that specifically use ADN because of the global reach and all the different yeah. places that more of their tail customers that, yeah. that get yeah. the benefit out of that. But yeah, it's there's also and that makes sense. Yeah, and there's more newer payment, almost like payment cards, in lieu of what your payment agreements are. So basically, it facilitates the wires and facilitates all the payments, what would normally have gone just through normal wires or checks that are sent. Absolutely. No, thanks, Paul, for bringing up this topic and also sharing some of your experiences with it and views. So I think we should go to the final part of this episode. So we have a tradition in the show, and that's that we're always rounding off with a question from the previous guest. And our previous quest was Brand Bracke, a former B2B sales leader in automotive and currently he's owning his consultancy agency. And his question to you in this case is what should be the required skill set for sales leaders in 10 to 15 years? That's a great question. And I think it would be easy just to jump to some technology thing. But my experience, uh, the best salespeople and what their skill sets should be the same, that have always been the same. It's especially around empathy. The best sales guys are those who understand their customers and their problem. And then they can embrace their, not just what is it going to do for them, but how are you going to make your customer lives easier? And if you can understand their pain points and empathize with them and set up the value case to align to that, that's really the salesmen that I've seen have been the most successful is that they empathize with the company, with the person in the specific role. So they understand if you're selling to somebody, they're putting their life, they put their job on the line. And so how can you empathize with that and make their life easier, right? And so having that understanding and that way, I think it's not going to change. And I think 
10 to 15 years, you'll still need that. Yeah, you'll need some super techie skills to get access to all the data, but really that sales empathy, I think is most important. I love that. That will be very comforting also for our audience here. It's it's difficult enough to fine-tune that, that skill. You'll probably need 10 to 15 years to, to be perfect at it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. So, yeah, you also know that the next question is, what will be your question for our next guest? So, floor is yours, Paul. Yeah, the question that I have for the next guest is, what is the top reason your customers are resistant to B2B commerce? Very good question. That's a great question. Thank you for that. So we will listen to the next episode, right? Once it comes out to hear the answer, but thanks for that, Paul. Look, I think rounding off, this has been a great episode. It was great to hear uh, from your experiences. I think you run a fantastic company with Deloitte, right? Helping so many customers in, in B2B now, especially with commerce. And it was great to hear about your experiences. You talked about the foundation in B2B commerce. You gave examples, right? For example, this chemicals company that had a higher valuation, basically, because they also had a B2B commerce channel successfully running. So yeah, it was great to have you in the show, Paul. So thanks a lot for that. No, I appreciate it. And it's always great to be amongst people who understand what we go through all the time, right? Like, and <laughs> Yeah, understand, absolutely. Understand B2B. B2B is important. It's omni-channel. And don't simplify it. It's not just putting a B2C good experience. It's no, it's what are the business value that you're going to help drive at these businesses, right? In this omni-channel way. Absolutely. Thanks for these closing words, Paul. And thanks for spending time with us on our podcast. Also, thanks to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed our episode with Paul as much as we did. 